During the pandemic, direct-to-consumer, or DTC brands, seem to be having a moment as consumers were stuck at home and looking for new products and new ways to engage with their food. Flash forward three years and inflation is certainly putting a dent into the space. I'm Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and join us as we take a look at the DTC space with Dr. James Richardson, owner of Premium Growth Solutions and author of Ramping Your Brand. It's coming to you right now on the Food Institute Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. I did want to take a moment to put one URL on your radar, and that's foodinstitute.com slash newsletters. There you'll find links to sign up for all of our free daily and weekly newsletters, including the Retail 360, which takes a look at all of the different happenings in the grocery retail space. So once again, that's foodinstitute.com slash newsletters. So welcome back to the show, Dr. Richardson. I know you have introduced yourself a few times, but for those who may not have caught the older episodes, could you give us a brief introduction about you and what you do? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a cultural anthropologist turned business strategist, author of Ramping Your Brand. And I run a small solo consultancy that does strategic planning for early stage consumer brands. Excellent. And for any Food Institute readers, you may recognize Dr. Richardson from some of the articles he submits with us. And if you're not following him on LinkedIn already, definitely do so. One of my favorite reads whenever I see something posted by him in the morning or the afternoon, whenever it shows up, usually pretty insightful and gets people talking. So get those plugs out of the way. But I know we're going to be talking about uh, direct-to-consumer food retail brands today, and I think we can include beverages in there. So I'm thinking at the top here, maybe we could talk a little bit about what you think are the most important attributes you find in common with successful DTC food brands. Can we start off there? Well, <clears throat> I think uh, the first thing I would say is I don't actually see a lot of successful DTC food brands, but I have encountered a few. Uh, they're all super lightweight and not bulky products. Um, to be honest, the brands that have done well are actually meal replacement powders. Um, like Orgain has done phenomenally well, maybe a little more through Amazon than D2C. Uh, but whenever you can get uh, that combination of lightweight, shelf-stable, and high, order, high case price, super hard in food, D to C can work, but it's getting, it's getting, it's gotten much harder to be honest, Chris, because of the, um, just the phenomenal increase in drop shipping charges by the major players. You know, there's only so much bulk discount advantage you get as a small business. So, um, the, the brands that are, the consumer brands that are doing better in D to C really are beyond food, to be honest. And they're using, they're using it as a, and even if they are in food, they're using it as a way to build a local heavy user base in their home turf, if that makes sense. So say they started in, I don't know, um, a supermarket chain, some independents, uh, and some food service cafes or something super scrappy, <laughs> you know, rewarding heavy users by geofencing a D2C business to ship into that city, right? Shipping cases to the fans. That you can make money doing. I hope I'm not getting too detailed in my response. <laughs> but but like once you, once you leave zone one, these businesses lose money. That's the problem. 
So it becomes like a very expensive advertising platform. So I know you said Orgain is doing well in one of those spots, uh, or not spots, but one of the players in the food industry. Are there any other food industry DTC brands you can think of that seem to be doing well, at least from your vantage point? I guess like one of the big ones we could bring up maybe as a lightning rod would be Magic Spoon. I know they had a DTC model. Um, you know, yeah, no, were very I think, excited about that. But I think that they did a good job getting trial through that i i would imagine they lost money on every shipment but they were well funded so the the reality of you know i've talked about this before in some of my public commentary for the average founder d2c to me really is a way to in a highly geofenced manner to create a costco retail option essentially a discounted case pack for your earliest heavy users right and you like i said on last month's show you've got to create you got to create those geeky gonzo like daily and multi times a week users. So if even if you only make $1, <laughs> you know, feeding that habit locally where you could make a buck or two bucks off the case, right? Or three, that is the best way to use DTC. Um, and it also is a research laboratory early on. So you can start to learn from, from your fans really quickly and iterate and that, um, people are starting to pick up on that and use it as a research lab as well. The, the idea of doing D2C nationally in food, because most food products weigh a lot, and you can't price the average order value where it needs to be to make money. I mean, you're talking about something that only well-funded uh, startups are doing so let's take an example it's adjacent in the you know, liquid death a lot of people have got a lot i've read i've read all the interviews that i can get my hands on including the early ones you know he started with i believe three million dollars in seed money to do the social media advertising to prove that he had some kind of economic model to make it work and that they they were he was going to be able to use ads to drive the sales so he spent that money to you know amassing pre-orders but that money also was carrying him. So he didn't have to make money on the initial cases. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. You know, I mean, that that's a rich man's game. And that's fine. Um, and honestly, a, <laughs> with what's going on in the macro economy and the long-term trends of slowing GDP growth in the United States, this may be the future, is that most startups in food are Mike Cesario's. Not the kind of people you meet at Expo West who cash their home equity out. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. And <laughs> taking a look at the uh, the fan-driven businesses episode, probably should have talked about Liquid Death a little bit, considering the cult following they've seen. Yeah, no, it's a great... But... I don't know that it's repeatable outside of water and maybe a couple other categories where, where there's such a... There, there's billions of dollars of volume purchased only on price to steal. You know, it's very... And the product actually doesn't matter to most of those consumers. I mean, that's just not, that's not what my book is about because most people can't use that strategy in their category. <laughs> so, um, I'm glad it worked for him. It was well done. <laughs> <laughs> and we do at the Food Institute love a lot of his advertising. I got to say that. Yeah, it's is, fun. It's a lot it's of fun. fun to keep an eye on. I'd like to jump back. One of the things you said here is that you know, DTC can actually utilize this model for 
consumer trial from my seat, you know, when we were first talking about this episode, I thought this would be a major obstacle for DTC. You know, when we talked last month, you know, typically consumers do their trial either at food service locations, so they don't need to cook it and they can get, you know, quote unquote expert, you know, cooking on that item, or they find something that they find interesting in a supermarket, C-store, et cetera. I feel that DTC is in a spot, you know, Maybe I'm thinking more of a national level, you know, this hypothetical national DTC player. But to me, it seems like it would really, you know, hamper consumer trial because they don't have so many opportunities. So with that in mind, you know, could you maybe talk a little bit more about what you were saying there with the dynamic and being able to utilize it for consumer trial? I'm assuming it's more hyper localized kind of from your answer earlier, but I would like to. Yeah, no, I, 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 I look at D2C less as a trial driver in food, um, because it not only it loses money and also because in most categories people don't they don't trust that there's going to be a good taste experience from a website um they're actually more likely to take a risk inside a grocery store because i think we're primed to believe that the grocery store edited the, the things inside of it which is not necessarily true <laughs> right i think we're kind of primed I mean, I, I even go into Whole Foods and catch myself assuming that this new thing is going to taste good. And most of the time it does. But sometimes it's horrible. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I think people are going to be more skeptical in food on a website for like initial trial. The, the businesses that I've worked with and I've studied that done well on D2C are all outside of food. And I don't think that's an accident. I think we're a little more conservative in food categories. Uh, more than we are in beverages. We're much more playful and experimental about our cu- and curious in beverages than we are in, uh, especially alcohol, which is my main reason why. Yeah. I think that uh, George Clooney tequila phenom, you know, is, is kind of an alcohol specific logic in our culture. It doesn't really translate to like brownies. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because you and I don't, you know, I actually have a giant agave in my backyard here in Tucson, but I don't know how to turn it into tequila, Chris, and I'm not going to spend my time doing it. I mean, I might (laughs) buy a bottle of Dr. Richardson's tequila, but, you know, I'm not sure how big that market is overall. (laughs) Hyper artisan. (laughs) Two ounces from one plant. So I think that does kind of bring up an interesting point, though, with trial compared to, you know, in-store versus, you know, having to rely on social media or your website. You know, if you are a DTC food brand trying to make this work, in your opinion, you know, what can you do to ensure consumers see your product? How do you get those consumer eyeballs if they don't have, you know, is it just like an effective social media marketing program or are you really relying on, you know, word of mouth, a combination? Like, how would that actually play Well, out? so here's the thing. Unless your audience is like 50 plus, I just indicted myself here, but I've looked at the data. Unless your audience is almost like the people who are going to really like your thing are somehow like all over the age of 50. (laughs) Um, What has worked for folks that I know um, and what social theory would tell you also is going to work with younger folks who are digital natives is doing the things I talk about in my book ramping your brand regarding field marketing. So local, cheap, sort of guerrilla field marketing, um, not at Lollapalooza, but the cheap stuff, right? Um, where you're actually marketing your D2C URL. So I worked with a company a couple of years ago and I literally, I can't get into any details, but the gist of it was I basically said, guys, <laughs> um, if you're gonna sample at music venues, don't put your trademark on the poster, put your URL 
Right. To me, that that's crazy because it seems like call to action 101, right? <laughs> like if you're selling on your website only, shouldn't that? Well, be the part of yeah, and these kids were not old either. But once you get once you get inside running one of these businesses, you do get it's very. I mean, this I usually have to attack this with some of my clients. Is like we have to take a deep breath and we have to shelve the brand ego, right? Like you, your when you read your trademark on your website, it, you're staring at your baby in a carriage, right? I mean, you're. It's literally like this most holy, sacred, precious thing. And so they're often thinking in their brand like a religion all day long. We got to step out of that and understand what's the easiest way to get people to my website. Well, tell them what the URL is again and again and again and again and again. And young people will absolutely, it's their go-to place, man. They're always checking up the website of a new business. They do, digital natives do that automatically. The 50 and over set don't. Some of them. That's my take. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think here, you know, what about trying to reach that older consumer set? Is that just, if you're a DTC brand, don't even worry about them? Is that kind of the thinking? Well, that, that's where I think you're going to have to do marketing. And that, you know, this More is traditional not a great, marketing. This is not a great era, era if you have to pay money to drive traffic to a website. Uh, on these platforms. So the way that you do that, that's actually worked for folks across. So I have worked with a client who sells across age groups, right? And so plenty of older folks and she used earned media, you know, show up on the Today Show. That'll work. (laughs) Now, make make sure you're operationally ready to fulfill before you show up on the Today Show or you will lose your magic moment. But that's one way to do it, work PR um, to drive the traffic. Um, the last thing I would point people to is giving Mark Zuckerberg cash. And yeah. you're saying to do it or not to do it? Not to do it because okay. it's not Mike Cesario in 2019. He got his time. He got so lucky in his timing. And he knows that. He still had really cheap click-through rates. I think that's something we're seeing across the board too. Um, You know, like it's just getting more and more expensive, everything. These costs are across the board. And I think a lot of companies are going to have to be a lot more strategic on what marketing they decide to go after. And, you know, I mean, maybe I'm Well, I think the the irony for me, Chris, is that DTC, DTC has always had available to it you know, event marketing, you know, that advertises the URL with the QR code or whatever. It's always had PR as ways to drive traffic. But the challenge I think is that the, the, you know, prior to the pandemic, the, 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 the entire model of D to C and who it was attracting was kind of a get rich quick crowd from the founder all the way to the investors backing them. And so they would prematurely raise money. And then, um, in an, un, in an, uh, in an environment of cost that wasn't going to last anyways without a pandemic, right? Cause Social media was going to mature and have to start upping its fees, right? So uh, to, to keep the growth going as a public stock. So that was all going to happen anyways. Um, people kind of got lulled in to this belief that you could just start businesses with some seed money, just basically pay to buy consumption, buy traffic, buy consumers. And it's just totally false because you, even though you can buy the trial, you can't buy repeat purchase. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's a great point to make. There's right no there, way right? to do it. 
you can get that product into a person's hand. You can get them to try it, but you can't pay. Well, I mean, I, perhaps you could pay them to become. Well, a no, fan. but I think but you that, understand what I'm saying. But Chris, that was the other kind of cynical angle of D to C that I think hopefully people are getting beyond is the you know let's create a pure play subscription model, right? So we kind of hook them. Let's make it hard to cancel. That's my favorite. Like, let's <laughs> bury the cancel button. Uh, all these horrible things that don't actually work long term. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to imagine, you know, if you make it very difficult with a subscription model to cancel, you got to be doing more damage via word of mouth. When, Long term, yeah. You know, when that yeah, people are not going to parents like never exactly. do this, you know, so. Well, that's what I tell everyone about the Wall Street Journal when I tried to cancel them. I had to actually get on the telephone. That's how cynical they were. Anyways. <laughs> was just, what year was that? <laughs> this was, was that three months ago, dude. Three months ago. Wow. Yeah. So that's how they play ball. Interesting. <laughs> So I have a question here, and I have a feeling you will illuminate it very, very well. But from my vantage point, if you're a DTC food brand and you're trying to get more consumers, you know, why wouldn't you just also kind of adopt an omni-channel approach? You know, at the Food Institute, we're seeing, you know, I expected after the pandemic food pickup, you know, grocery specifically, grocery pickup and delivery to kind of fall off a ledge. But it seems to be holding a little bit of traction, and it's not like you have super users, at least from the research I've seen, but it's really about the use case. You know, you have, uh, you know, a young family, they got three kids, they got soccer practice, and they yep. got all these other things going on. So maybe once in a while they're doing a grocery delivery because they got a really busy week. But on the other aspect, you know, you got consumers that want to be able to pick out their own produce, pick out their own meat, et cetera. So we're seeing this demand for like an omni-channel kind of approach from grocers. And I'm wondering if you're a DC, DTC brand, why wouldn't you also try for this? You know, you can sell your own products via your website, but then also get that consumer trial. To me, it seems like, you know, perfect mashup that you could do. And now I'm excited to hear how this is completely wrong. <laughs> so I hope you can tell me what's going <laughs> well, on. Well, no, there. I mean, I think my initial comment at the beginning of this conversation was kind of a downer because I agree with you. I mean, I don't know why you would launch a pure play D2C food business unless you're selling, again, a very elite, like athletic greens kind of dry powder, you know what I'm saying? Like meal replacement. I mean, if you're doing that, because athletic greens, they have the order value. It's atrociously expensive product. <laughs> I'm sure they make money. Um, <laughs> uh, they have a subscription model. It's also selling you weight management, essentially. So, you know, that... That's a killer kind of combo, but most foods aren't going to have that. So yeah, they have to be omni-channel. But the, the real question you're kind of pointing to is what do I do with these different channels? And there's two things you can do with an omni-channel D2C food business. With two things you can do with your website. You can make it a specialty retail outlet where you offer the long tail of limited offerings and you basically cater to... Um, you know, the true geeks who would be happy to have you know, uh, I don't know, a, Lithu a Lithuanian mint chocolate <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> available only for three days. <laughs> so, you know, you can curate that kind of thing if you'd like, and if it's appropriate to your category, or you can use it, as I said earlier, and I think this is more valuable, to sell a whole case to your fans in your, in your original market, right? Because you probably haven't gotten into Costco yet. <laughs> and you, you know, you know, it's kind of, it's a mixed bag. It, um, Amazon has now gotten so expensive that it may actually be, sh it's probably cheaper to just ship a case of food locally within 10 miles than to try to go through Amazon's network to serve a local market. Um, two years ago, I wouldn't have said that. 
<laughs> but oh, yeah, of, what I'm what I'm hearing on the fees is just insane. So you know, again, feeding that, getting people who buy cases, these people are gold. Uh, early on to the financial efficiency of the business. So that to me, those are the two reasons you'd use a website to sell food directly. Um, aside from the learnings you get from your early consumers. But I always advise people that even if you do that, you just got to prepare that this is not your growth engine. Like this is not your volumetric, you know, fire hose to glory here. Um, in fact, it'll probably shrink as a proportion of your business as you grow in primary retail. And that's just how people buy food. I'd, I'd rather see people get an omni-channel setup going um, as early as they can and use Instacart as the place to spend money because that actually is, um, although it's getting more expensive, obviously it's, it's a very efficient trade show, a uh, trade marketing flywheel. Yeah. And I think, you know, Instacart seems to be in our newsletters just about every day yeah. with some kind of new technological improvement. But I do think one of the things that Instacart does very well is just kind of, um, you know, first of all, customer support, you know, when a product's out of, out, you know, they have the individual shopper being able to make those kinds of, you know, replacements, et cetera. But I do think the marketplace aspect is also very big, right? You know, being able to get on their webpage and showcase any kind of deals, et cetera, you know, really can be a helpful thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, again, depending on how premium you are, you can still profitably drive trial with Instagram ads. Um, not immediately, but like, um, but with hyper-targeted trade ads like that, you can get the profitability within six to nine months if you're generating X percent of repeat consumers with one ad, right? So um, it, it, it's a nice way to build the trial. But D2C then becomes the place to cater to your fans and your the case pack buyers, right? Because early in the first couple of years, you're not going to be in Costco. You're not going to, you know, you may avoid selling cases on Amazon. Um, for good reasons, because you can't make any money. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's become, it's becoming the only place to really do that early on. How do you get a case into their hands? It's not so easy to sell, you know, a mature price pack architecture from the start. I don't know many people who can pull that off, right, with a new brand. Uh, <laughs> you know, takes some time to get that on the show. So we just talked about a bunch of positives from that omni-channel approach, but do you think there are any negatives, any headwinds that a company would face if they're trying to kind of develop these things in tandem or even sequentially? Well, yeah, the D2C site could basically be a giant leaky bucket of profit if you don't manage it to generate value for the business, both uh, at least a break-even economic reality or, or add some symbolic value by getting really important strategic insights from your fans that lead you to optimizing the, the entire business. So those two things are necessary. If you just throw it up there and then pray um, and you don't manage it properly, including like geofencing the distribution. <laughs> Some guy in Oklahoma can't get the case, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. You could basically, it could economically be a real problem for a startup. There's very little margin for error on cash flow. That, that's the, the cruel reality. Um, but uh, that's, to me, the big downside. And the other one would be over-investing in it um, before the D2C KPIs are showing that this is, not, this is actually a primary channel of purchase. 
And again, that's going to, in my experience, that's going to be the brands that are selling very specific kinds of um, super high value and generally weight management oriented things, you know, meal replacement powders. <laughs> Bringing it back to the beginning there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, not brownies, not lettuce. <laughs> So I know we've talked a lot about DTC. I know, you know, food businesses really going to have some trouble in this spot, I think, for a lot of the reasons you mentioned. Just wondering, you know, as we're about to close out the show, anything else we should know, you know, if you're a DTC or, you know, aspiring DTC food brand, what kind of advice would you give them overall? You know, would it be to try to get that omni-channel approach? Would it be really hyper-focusing directly on those consumers? What kind of advice would you hand out? Yeah, I would... um... I would tell people to think about it primarily as the place to, to reward your local early fans with a case pack discount. Um, and I think that that has huge value long-term by making sure that they get habituated to consuming. <laughs> um, and then combining that without a store marketing events. That's what I would use it for, uh, really gritting that that heavy usage flywheel going. Um, even though it costs a lot of money to, to do that, I think it gives you an advantage, Chris, over folks that are just using like retail and all they have is three flavors and they're single packs. You, do, you absolutely have an advantage if you can push cases of product into people's homes. They will habitualize um, people are going to see it. There's a, there's an effect long-term that, that we all know. I know I said it last month and I'll say it again. I wish we had more time. Dr. Richardson, always an interesting conversation. And I learn a lot. If anybody wants to learn a little bit more about you and your work, where should they go? They could go to www.premiumgrowthsolutions.com. All right. Perfect. And as always, take a look in the description of this episode to learn a little bit more and we'll get you links directly over to that website. So once again, Dr. Richardson, thanks so much for your time today. Okay. Thanks, Chris. And that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Make sure to check out foodinstitute.com slash newsletters and take a look at the description of this episode for some links over to Premium Growth Solutions. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off.